please. Okay. Um, 220 Marlins across is um, Pheasant. Pheasant and Redfield? Yes. Okay. That's the process. Um, gunshot wounds to the head. I'm sorry? Gunshot wound to the head. Gunshot wound to the head? Is it self-inflicted? Uh, I don't know. Okay. The day of February 6, 2008, was a cold one. Outside, it was a jarring 40 degrees, made worse by a strong, biting wind. On days like this, a person finds reasons to stay inside. Household chores to do, bills to pay, coffee to drink. In the dull throes of winter, nobody expects a surprise to rock their world. And yet, for a small family of two in Medfield, Massachusetts, that is exactly what happened. As her daughter Maggie went through a normal day at Memorial School, Meg Ninos entertained an unexpected guest and did not survive the encounter. You're listening to Casting Vine Lake, based in Medfield, Massachusetts. We are your hosts, Maggie Scales and Grace Mitchell. For most, the term deadfield means sleepy summer days with nothing to do, but for an unfortunate few, it takes on a much darker meaning. On today's episode, we'll be dissecting the 2008 murder of Medfield resident Meg Ninos by her ex-boyfriend, Andrew Bosevert. Before beginning this episode, we would like to offer our deepest condolences to the family of Meg Ninos. She was a beautiful person, and what happened to her is truly one of the greatest tragedies in Medfield history. Who knows what exactly Andrew Bosevert was going to talk to his ex-girlfriend about on February 6th of 2008. The general consensus is that the topic was Maggie, their child who, caught in the rift of a split, lived with her mother on Marlin Road. We can only assume Andrew's purpose was to argue for shared custody. At the time, he was only allowed to see her for one weekend a month. The rest of the time, Maggie's with Meg. Whether Meg was anticipating this visit is really up to speculation. Given that her body was later discovered in the garage of all places suggests the negative. But of course, none of these questions or their answers really matter. Andrew and Meg probably didn't talk much anyway. But before we break down what actually happened, let's talk about Meg. Margaret Eldred Ninos, known as Meg to her friends, was born on May 5, 1960 in Syracuse, New York. She went to school at Mount Holyoke College and later pursued a degree in nursing at UMass Boston. Her career started as a medical surgery nurse at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. It was there that she spent her last 20 years delivering babies and caring for their mothers. According to Meg's brother, Steve, Meg loved what she did, loved nursing, loved watching babies be born and caring for their mothers. Were it up to Meg, I have no doubt in my mind she would never would have had another career. When someone is that cut out for a job, that passionate about their work, they never feel they need to do anything else. If you love what you do, you never work a day in your life, right? I mean, yeah, like, knowing she's a nurse, and I know, like, nurses get a lot of, like, tough hours, I wonder if, like, that could have been the root of some sort of issue with their relationship. They never, like, get to see each other a lot. The the baby came around, and there was a lot to do, and she was never around. I don't really know. That's true. Nurses do work some really hard hours, and he, I mean, well, we'll touch on this later about what he did for work, but, um... I mean, I don't know. It, obviously, you can't blame a murder for not being around, but, like... 
don't know. I'm trying true. to I'm trying to see like the other side. Yeah, or, or see like why why they split in the first place, but I mean ultimately you're right, it doesn't doesn't truly really matter. So now we have an idea of who Meg was. Loving mother, compassionate nurse, good human. Who could ever murder her? For a few days after her murder, nobody could answer that question. But I'm getting ahead of myself. First, we gotta discuss what happened. At 7.04 p.m. that day, February 6th, police received an urgent call about a murder on Marlin Road. Remember that 911 call we played in the beginning? That was the voice of Andrew Bozovert, or Andy to his friends. Andy reported that his wife appeared to have been shot, that her body was cold and lifeless. He sounded exactly how one would expect him to, shocked, scared, unsure of what to do. When police arrived on the scene and found Meg's body in her garage, they realized that Andy had been wrong about one thing. Meg hadn't been shot, but bludgeoned with a blunt object. The fact that it looked enough like a gunshot for Andy to think otherwise speaks volumes about the brutality of the assault. When police arrived on the scene, they found Andrew Bozover coated in blood. He had slipped in blood upon finding Meg's body, contributing to the scene's grisly appearance. Maggie was still in the house somewhere, having been sent back inside when Andy made his awful discovery. Maggie was immediately sent to the Passas family's house next door, where she would spend a night shrouded in mystery and confusion. For one entire night, Maggie had no idea her mother was dead. Do we know how old Maggie was? At the time, well, she's our age now, so she was most likely born in 2001, so she would have been seven. Jeez. I feel like I remember when I was, like, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, no, you remember being seven. I remember being Mm -hmm. seven. God, that's crazy. I know. I mean, you would, you just wouldn't understand what was happening. Yeah, you wouldn't understand what was happening, but then you become 18 and you remember not yes, understanding what Yes, yes, you would think back on it and realize all uh, the things you didn't realize at the time. Yep. Horrifying. I, yeah, it is. Andrew, meanwhile, was cuffed as soon as he exited the house. I can only imagine how Maggie would have felt if she had seen her father, covered in blood, being escorted outside, and I'm glad she was spared that image. Immediately following the initial investigation, police didn't have any suspects, despite having immediately handcuffed Andrew at the scene. Her ex-boyfriend even had a seemingly watertight alibi. He'd been to a convenience store in the likely time frame of her murder, with a receipt in the store's video surveillance footage to prove it. If you're curious, he purchased an energy drink. Not to mention, he had gotten Maggie off the bus and then taken her to a movie before coming home and discovering Meg's body. But this isn't 1745, or should I say 1802, where a halfway decent alibi will absolve you of all wrongdoings. Eventually, police caught up to the trail, and the person they found at the end of it was Andy. The only thing they couldn't find was Andy himself. I mean, in 1802, I'm thinking back to that first podcast, bludgeoning's like, okay, it's 1802. <coughs> Excuse me. But in 2008, what are you going to bludgeon someone with? A golf club? Like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking less about what he used, but I guess I see what you mean. I mean, obviously nobody, no sane person could, like, murder someone and obviously so obviously he's not like a sane person but then to actually like beat them to death yeah with an, yeah is it's, just I mean, incomprehensible like shooting someone it's like it's done and over with but bludgeoning them like, yeah you have to hit them more than once yeah that that's that's so macabre though i can't even i I, can't, I don't even i mean none of this is pleasant to think about but just like the fact that he was able to go through with that and not stop himself is deeply disturbing it had to be more than long hours at the hospital yes i mean i think we knew that from the very beginning <laughs> yeah. but he yeah there was something there was something deeply wrong it would seem that once the warrant was released for andy's arrest he fled doesn't exactly make him look good does it 
It took five days to find him, and by the time they did, he wasn't, for all intents and purposes, really there. Andrew Bozovert hanged himself from a tree in North Carolina, leaving on his body a note with his name, social security number, and reasoning. Most poignantly, he wrote, this is not an admission. Isn't it, though? Like, yeah. Your social yeah. security number? And, well, like, just, no, like, just the it fact that he... me. Just, like, <laughs> just the fact that he hanged himself in the first place. I mean, I could understand, you know, you're terrified because you're going to be put on trial, and, like, your family's probably going to think you did it, even if you didn't. But, like, why would you run in the first place? If you knew it wasn't you, because obviously if you didn't do it, you would know. Yeah. You would fight to prove that you didn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at least that's what I would do. I certainly wouldn't flee. I mean, and also I feel like with, like, modern-day, like, cases and stuff, these things go on forever. He could have fought his case for years. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I don't, I don't know. And they also, like, I mean, especially in Massachusetts, nobody's quick to use the death penalty. Like, everybody's so against the yeah. death penalty. He would have just had, like, life imprisonment, which, I mean, obviously, like, life in prison is not a quality life, but, I mean, life at all is... Something. something. I know, and I like to think that our justice system is... At least a little bit just in that. Yeah. I mean, there could have been a way to prove that it wasn't him if it truly wasn't, but... Yeah, he totally easily could have fought it and gotten yeah. a lot more time. Yeah, I mean, not to talk ill of the dead, but... Yeah. Yeah. With the discovery of Andy's body, much of the aftermath of Meg's murder was released to the public. After brutally bludgeoning her to death with a railroad pike, the massive screws used to bolt railroad tracks in place, Andrew left her body in the garage and hid his bloody clothes in his car. Having killed Meg, Andrew waited around to get little Maggie off the bus, then took her to a movie as if nothing had happened. Afterward, he went to the convenience store for that seemingly perfect Gatorade-sponsored cover-up, careful to stand in view of the store's security cameras. I have to wonder, what did Maggie think of all this? Did she ask her dad if she could run inside to say hi to Mommy before they left? Did he hold her hand just a little too tightly, telling her, Mommy isn't home, or, We have to go now before we miss the movie? Did Maggie shrug it off, too excited about the movie to care? Or did she scrunch her little brow and wonder where her mommy was, why she wasn't allowed to see her? Or did they go inside, and be careful to not let Maggie go into the garage? This also, like, makes me think you were saying the custody situation was really tough, where, like, he only had her, what, like, one day a month or something Mm -hmm. like that? One weekend a month, yeah. Yeah, I wonder if he... I mean, now, now that I'm, like, seeing him as this, like, awful person, which obviously he was, like, made Meg look look out to be like a bad person to maggie or like if she even had oh god i hope not yeah or even like how long has this was this like relationship like this like did she even have that like normal ideal of like what having two parents that get along like look like you know i I don't probably not it doesn't sound like it yeah i wonder if they like but they made each other out to be like bad people too. yes but i mean it definitely sounds like his master plan was that now that meg was dead that he would have full custody of Maggie, yeah. which is just, like, monstrous. Yeah, I mean, it's so easy for us to, like, think of, like, oh, like, she's probably, like, where's mommy, whatever, but I don't even know if that's, like, what her mindset was like growing up like this. True. Yeah, that is true. According to police, Maggie was in the house when her mother's body was still in the garage, and she did wonder where her mother was. It was she who suggested they check the garage for Meg's car. Andrew, clearly recognizing a chance to further prove his innocence, went along with it only to usher Maggie back inside when he, quote-unquote, noticed Meg's body. This is definitely a story that gives you that sick-to-your-stomach feeling, the type that makes you question, who could ever do something so horrible 
and with such care and forethought. Had you asked people who'd known Andrew Bozover before the crime, none of them would have answered that Andy could. Those who worked with Andy, who was a paramedic, knew him as an upstanding guy with a passion for and skill in his field. Hearing this, it's really no wonder that Andy and Meg initially connected, regardless of their intramarital disputes. Much in the way that the murder of a kindly nurse can shock a nation, the conviction of a compassionate medic as a murderer can do the same. Nevertheless, I realize now that Andy's career perhaps explains why he was able to execute his alibi without having a nervous breakdown. Short of being purely psychopathic, Andrew is well-practiced in the art of staying calm. Nobody could be a successful paramedic if they blanched or panicked at the sight of blood. In a way, the medical field is the best one for a murderer to be in, disregarding, of course, the Hippocratic Oath. The world sure does love its little ironies. Meg Ninos is survived by her daughter, mother, two brothers, and brother-in-law. You can pay your respects at Vine Lake Cemetery in Medfield, Massachusetts.